Hi, and welcome to the White Hill podcast series. My name is Roger. I'm one of the pastors here at White Hill, and we're glad that you've chosen to listen to one of the podcast messages today. Our prayer is that you would be challenged and inspired to take the next steps in your journey with God as you listen to this message. If you want to keep in touch with more things that are happening at White Hill, head to our website at whitehill.church and you can subscribe to our YouTube channel. Enjoy this message now. Cool. No, it is, it's good to be sharing with you. Uh, apart from mic difficulties, I'm sure it's going to be a great morning, um, a morning of encouragement and of reflection. Um, and it's, I think what I want to start with to say is that the first and last things that we say can often be the most memorable and the most meaningful things that we say. The first and last impressions are the lasting impressions. Uh, for my now wife, Julia, one of the first conversations we and I had, her and I had one-on-one was when she called me up into one of these upstairs offices um, and told me all the things that I was doing wrong. <laughs> so for her, she may have been getting a bit of frustration out, but for me, I was just looking at that going, wow, that is, that's a godly and strong woman. So I think, <laughs> I think it had the opposite effect of maybe what she was intending it to. I can remember the last things people have said to me as well, maybe before leaving or going away, some of them positive and encouraging, God bless you in your ministry, I'm praying for you, some completely the other end of the spectrum as well on their way out. The first and last things are important, and especially in the case of Jesus. In Luke uh, chapter 2, verse 29, we, we read of Jesus, the first thing we hear of him in all of Scripture is him Uh, wanting to be in his father's house. Even at that moment, he understood his identity and expressed this desire to want to be with the father and in study and worship of the father. And today we're going to look together at the last thing Jesus said before his death. As he's hanging on a cross in that last moment with the last breath that he has in his lungs, he says, it is finished. It's finished. It's a one-word summary of his life and of his ministry, maybe the most important statement that he has made in all of Scripture. And today we get to understand what was actually finished in this moment. I think we often sort of just say, you know, Jesus died for our sins, and we sort of move on to the next sort of point of application. But today being Good Friday, we get a chance just to slow down, just to clear our minds and just think and sit and consider what Jesus' death actually was, what does the cross mean, who Jesus was, and why he made this claim that it is finished. It's finished. We've been reading today from the Gospel of John, and John is Jesus' our dearest and closest disciple uh, during his time on earth. And John wrote about Jesus' death in chapter 19, and we're going to read again um, from verse 1 to 3 to begin with. John wrote this. He said, Then Pilate took Jesus... And had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they slapped him in the face. And this is toward now the end of John's gospel account. But if we go all the way back to chapter one, which um, we preached around Christmas time uh, last year. We know that John has clearly and emphatically revealed Jesus as God. 
He's attested to his divinity. He said that Jesus was before all things. He was the source of life, the creator of all things, that he was one with the Father. He was pre-existent. He was the God of this world, and he chose now to take the form of a man and enter into humanity. During his ministry, he spoke of heavenly things. He told people that he was the only way to life, the only way to God. He said that he was God and the only way to God. He was exclusive about it. He was definite about it. And that made people angry. They thought, how can this man claim to be God? How can this man claim to be a king and seek more glory than Caesar? And they were so angry that as we read here, they arrested him and they began to flog him. This was a lynching. This was a murder. He was taken away late at night. This wasn't a calm and considered trial. He was slapped, spat on, and whipped. Older English translations use the word scourged. And this scourging was meant to be sort of this legal preliminary to crucifixion, yet here done in the wrong order, just from the sheer anger and rejection that he faced from this angry mob. Many people died during this scourging, just from the sheer beating, from loss of blood, from pure exhaustion and pain. Their bodies would just give up and shut down. The victim would be tied to a low stake on the ground, and a soldier who was trained in this art, he was an expert, would take a whip made of leather with balls of steel and hooks and shards of metal on the end of it and strike repeatedly into the back of his victim. And as this metal entered into the flesh, it would be ripped out again, scourging and gouging the body of that person. Isaiah 52 said that Jesus' appearance would be so disfigured that it would be beyond that of a human being. He was so badly beaten before even his crucifixion that he was not even recognizable as a man. And then because of his claims to be gods, the, the Roman soldiers now mocked him for being king of the Jews. They twisted together thorn branches into a crown, not made of gold and of jewels, but into a crown of thorns and pressed it into the top of his head and into his brow. They put a purple robe on him as a sign of his royalty. You see, they didn't understand that Jesus was actually the true and eternal king. And even the Jewish people who had long awaited a king, a Messiah, had expected this military-type king, a political king that would retake the land that had been so contested to put the Jewish people back in authority. And Jesus didn't do that. He didn't come to overthrow earthly kingdoms, but he came to suffer in the place of his people so that they could be welcomed into his eternal kingdom. His kingship, although mocked in this passage, is true. It's eternal. He is the king of kings. He is the king of the Jews because he is the king of the world. He is the highest authority ruling and reigning over everything. He sits on his throne for eternity, but yet in this moment he is misunderstood and rejected and beaten. He was prepared to do this to fulfill God's will, the suffering king. He knew that in his suffering, 
there was actually victory that was being made possible. Jesus shows us in this moment the truths of his kingdom. The reality that, you know, even in this world, if we're told that we need to be kings and queens, we need to avoid any suffering, we need to just please ourselves and make sure we are as comfortable and as happy as possible, Jesus comes in and says, my, my kingdom doesn't look like that. He says, the honor and glory is not found in the promotion of oneself or looking to one's own interests, but looking to the interests of others in humility to love and to serve even to the point of suffering and death. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.17, he says, for this is but a light momentary affliction. The Apostle Paul, the man who was beaten, attempted to be killed, thrown in jail, shipwrecked, diseased, he said that is just a light momentary affliction. And it's preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And the first thing is that when we look at the suffering king, we need to ask ourselves, what opportunities have we been given to love and to serve and to care and to speak truth and encouragement that maybe we've avoided because of this fear and this avoidance of suffering? Whether it be suffering financially, socially, maybe even physically in the likeness of our suffering king. If you can consider that this morning. And if we continue to read, we see that Jesus was not only a humble king who was prepared to endure suffering for his people, but he was also an innocent and sinless king. In verse 4 down to 16, uh, you can read the sort of strange interaction Jesus has with, with Pontius Pilate, the governor of that time. And those who are seeking to crucify Jesus bring him to Pilate, and Pilate says, look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. Jesus' only crime in the eyes of the people was claiming to be God, claiming to be king. But in fact, he was God and he was king and he was completely innocent, completely without sin. They couldn't sentence him for anything else. They didn't have any evidence on him besides this fact that he claimed to be God, which was true. And Pilate even recognizes this. He says, there's, there's no guilt in him. But the Jewish leaders insisted that he must be killed. So Pilate's still confused. He, he takes Jesus in and he says this. He says, when Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. And he went back inside the palace and said, where do you come from? He asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said. Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of the greatest sin. Jesus knew exactly who he was. He knew that he was innocent and, in fact, that he alone was innocent. There's no one in this account. There's no one there who can say that they are innocent of Jesus' death. They all had sin and evil in their lives. They're all involved in Jesus' uh, crucifixion. There's been no one since Jesus. There was no one before Jesus. There will never be anyone else but Jesus. He alone is without sin. But he knew that this was God's plan. And regardless of his innocence, he remained silent and willingly went to the cross. 
still Pilate, not seeing Jesus deserving of crucifixion, but now fearful of this angry mob who's going to revolt and uprise against him if Jesus wasn't killed. Pilate decides in this, this passive, cowardly way just to hand Jesus over to be crucified. And I think at this point we see three different types of people. We see a group of people who are indifferent toward Jesus, those who think they are innocent or that think they are good, the bystanders, the onlookers, but in reality that these people have as much sin and evil in their lives as those who are directly opposed to them. They're worse than they think they are, and in fact, they're worse than they can think they are. And that evil will lead to their death and destruction. Then there's those who are actively opposed. These are the Jewish leaders the Roman soldiers, the ones who are seeking to kill and to crush Jesus' movement, those people too are guilty. But there's one other group of faithful disciples who are submitted to his kingship, who are in grief and in mourning and in shock and horror, seeing their beloved Savior being tortured and killed. These people are aware of their sinfulness, and now they're trusting in Jesus for their salvation. Which group do you fall into? Indifference, opposition, or submission. Because all three are responsible for Jesus' death. But only one can stand here this morning and say that because of what happened in this next moment in his crucifixion, that they would be rescued from the punishment of their sin. We read about this moment from verse 16. Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus, carrying his own cross. He went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with two others on one side, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. You know, as you drove in this morning, you would have seen uh, the cross on top of the church. Maybe you saw the cross in um, our banner. Maybe you saw the cross behind me. Maybe there's one in your home, one around your neck. In Jesus' time, that would have been so backward and wrong. The cross was an object of horror. It was designed to shock and to bring fear. It was an instrument of torture. Because those opposed to this Roman Empire, those who were convicted as criminals, would be hung on this cross and left to die as if to say, if you want to do what they did, if you want to act in those ways, this will be your end. It'd be like us going down to the supermarket or down to the cafe, you know, with your kids, with your family, with your mom and dad, and there at eye level, as you walk in, is a man pierced and hanging from a wooden stake. And with the last breath that he has in his lungs, he's crying out in anguish. That is the shocking and horrifying images that Jesus would have grown up with. There was even a case in the early 80s, 70s, where 6,000 men, 6,000 people were crucified along which was sort of like Europe's first superhighway, the Appian Way. It was 212 kilometers long. That's like driving from here all the way past Noosa and seeing crucified people the entire way. It was designed for horror and for shame. There wasn't even a word that could describe how painful it was. They came up with this Latin word, excruciate. Excruciating, which literally means from the cross. Soldiers would nail their victims 
into that cross. They would place spikes through their hands and through their feet, and the only way for that person to get air would be to push up off of those spikes, to get a breath of air, and then slouch back into that state again. It would last sometimes hours, sometimes day, falling in and out of consciousness, and if they weren't dying quick enough, they would have their legs broken and smashed so that they couldn't push up and breathe any longer. It was the most painful, the most shameful, the most wretched way to die. Then in verse 28 to 30, we read that later knowing that everything had now been finished and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And you think in that moment, after hours of pain and torture and suffering, how desperately he would want just a little bit of cool water for your lips. That are bleeding. Yet they give him a sponge soaked in wine vinegar. And it's likely that sponge was used by the Romans to wipe filth off themselves after relieving themselves. The horror is hard to speak of. N.T. Wright um, said, in order to speak meaningfully of the cross, in order to understand what was finished and to speak meaningfully today of the cross, he said, one must say something about evil. And that is what this was. Evil. He said, the problem which the cross has decisively addressed at the cross. The innocent king suffered on a tree that he spoke into existence, carrying the weight and the shame of all of humanity. And with the last breath that he had left in his lungs, he yells out, as Mark says, in a loud voice, it is finished. It's finished. Why? Why go through this? Why suffer and die in this way? That line, it is finished, it tells us a lot about what Jesus had set out to accomplish. And this Greek word here, to telestai, it's translated there is into it is finished. In other places, depending on the context, it's translated into accomplished or completed or even paid. In fact, there's um, evidence to suggest that in this ancient Near East, in the time of Jesus, that this Greek word would be written on bills and on debts to suggest that that had been paid in full. And I think it's important to understand that word in that context because the Bible says that every time we sin, we accrue a debt against God. Just like at the end of the month, you get that statement from your credit card, from your mortgage, To say, here's the debt, this is what you owe. In the presence of God, we also have a record of debt. And this debt's not one that you can balance out with good works because we are the problem, then we cannot be the solution. It is our sin nature and our sinfulness that has caused the spiritual death and separated us from God. So in that place, we cannot just work up the strength or do something to bring ourselves back to life again. We practice sins of commission, the the things that we think and say that are dishonoring and offensive towards this perfect and holy God. And we practice things of omission, the things that we do not do, 
that God's asked us to do when we fail to love or to serve or to give or to speak truth. And because God is perfectly just and this debt that we have accrued against him is so immense, the payment of this sin must be nothing short of death. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. So know today that there's two things that will happen. One of two things that will happen when you die and pass from this life. One, you stand before the creator of the universe and you have this record of debt read to you. And it's decided in that moment of judgment that you are the one responsible to pay that debt. And you're sentenced and cast into an eternal death in hell, a debtor's prison. Or otherwise, you die and Jesus, who alone is innocent and without sin, declares in that moment that he has substituted himself in your place and that your debt to God has already been paid in its totality at the cross by the death of Jesus. And in that moment, you enter into his eternal kingdom in perfect peace and joy in the presence of God. Colossians 2, 13 to 14 says, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away. He has. Nailing it to the cross. So in that moment, 2,000 years ago at a hill in Golgotha when Jesus made that final cry. It wasn't just a cry of anguish. It wasn't a cry of relief to the end of his suffering. But as one commentator puts it, it was a triumphant announcement. A triumphant announcement that the debt has been paid for all those who repent and believe. That the debt has been finished in its fullness. In the perfect atoning work of Jesus. Paid in full. Today we get to share in communion and we celebrate and we reflect this triumphant announcement that it is finished. Past, present, future, sin paid for in its totality in the atoning work of Jesus Christ, it is finished. And to give you a visible reminder today, I'm going to ask the stewards to come and pass out this. This is just an invoice that I've drawn up here to give you just that visible reminder of the ways that we have accrued a debt against God. And this is a small list. I'm sure you can add thousands of things to this, but it just shows that in each ways that we act against the will and against the heart of God, we accrue against God a debt that can only be paid in death. And I want you to look through that list. Consider which ways have you offended this good and perfect God? What other ways have you done so? And what does scripture say the payment is? It says that the wages of sin is death. And if you want that debt to be paid by Jesus, you have to trust in him. You have to believe that he is the perfect sacrifice for your sins. Repent and believe in him. In a moment, I'm going to invite you all to head to one of our stations set up around the room. 
And there in big red text, you're welcome to write over the top of it, paid in full. And in that moment, not just by physically writing the letters, but as an attitude and conviction of your heart to say, Jesus, I know that I have sinned against you, but now in this moment I'm trusting in your perfect work on the cross that day from the horrific suffering that you went through, the shame that has now brought victory over sin, I'm trusting that it is paid in full. Once you've written on that, there's red buckets there, bins, you can tear that up, scrunch it up, throw it away, trusting that that has now been paid for. And then you can take the communion elements back to your seats. Jesus told his disciples um, to share in this meal of communion. He said, take the bread, eat it and remember me. Remember my body that was hung on a cross, substituted in your place. And then take the cup. Remember the blood that was spilled out for the forgiveness of your sins. So once you've done that, you can take those elements back to your seat and you can uh, reflect and consider in your own time and pray and ask God, repenting of those things and saying, God, I'm trusting in you now, in your finished work for forgiveness. If you haven't made this decision yet to repent and follow Jesus, don't get to the end of your days holding that invoice that hasn't been paid. Take part in this next moment. Acknowledge and believe that Christ has paid in full your debt of sin. And then I encourage you just to speak to somebody. Let somebody know that you've made that decision today so that we can pray for you and encourage you. We're going to have some music going and you're welcome just in your own time now, just to quietly head over to those stations and then I'll come and pray for us in a few minutes.
Jesus, we come before you and we just reflect on this idea of Good Friday. How can the worst thing done to the best person possibly be good? We can't even begin to imagine the horror and the suffering and the shame that was weighing upon you in that moment. Yet you willingly died for us, having each of us in mind. The depth of your love and your kindness and mercy is indescribable. Jesus, we know that we have sinned and wronged you. We know that the debt that we have accrued is immense. We are trusting this morning in the finished and atoning work of you, Jesus, on the cross. We thank you. We thank you that you did that for us. God, help us to live this life of repentance and submission to your true and eternal kingship. And give us today just a greater vision of your love and the depth and of what you've done for us, Jesus. We think now to Sunday. We know it's Friday, but we know Sunday's coming. And even though there was a payment of sin in your death, we know that there is victory and life in your resurrection. Help us to consider and reflect in these next few hours and days the great work that you have done for us. Our debt has been paid. We thank you, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening today. If you live locally here in the Ipswich region, we would love to invite you to come and join us in person uh, here at one of our Sunday gatherings at Whitehill. Uh, For more information on our services or our ministries, head on over to our website at whitehill.church. If you're interested also in taking next steps in your relationship with Jesus, please also at our website, hit the connect button And let us know where you're at. We would love to catch up with you either over a coffee or on a phone call to chat with you about where you're at. We hope you've enjoyed watching this message and we pray that God would continue to bless you as you seek to seek Him in your daily life. God bless.